Welcome to episode 1929 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, who is joined by other people sometimes. <laughs> yes, but always disappointed when I have to settle for someone else, so welcome Aww, back. <laughs> thank you. Well, a lot has happened since we last spoke. In the world, not as much in baseball. <laughs> Some things in baseball, too. Some things in baseball. <laughs> you missed Scott Boris pun week oh, round man. one. Or you didn't miss it. I'm sure you are aware that it occurred. In fact, I know you are because I messaged you, made you me to aware. joke yeah. that we should record an emergency episode. Instead... I pressed James Wagner into service and made him talk to me about some Boris puns because he was on the scene. Yeah. <laughs> he was in the room where it happened. But one thing we did not talk about was an actual substantive comment Scott Boris made, which I thought was interesting. So Scott Boris suggested that the pitch clock should not be used in the postseason. Mm. So I'm quoting here from one story. Boris also said he wasn't against the pitch clock, which will be instituted next year at the major league level after the minors experimented with the system, but argued it would be a mistake for the playoffs. It's a different scenario than the regular season, and we do not want the players' performances rushed, he said. We understand why they would probably do that during the season for the efficiency of the game and what they believe to be a fan-positive move for the shortening of games. But for the postseason, we don't want these men in a completely different emotional environment and where the settings mean so much more. So he is essentially arguing for the zombie runner treatment for the pitch clock. So what do you think of that? Well, hmm. What do I think of that? I don't know that I find it necessary. Yeah. As we have discussed when thinking about the pitch clock previously, you know, like if you look around the majors now, like a lot of these guys, I think are going to be pretty comfortable with the pitch clock from having personally experienced it, either for extended stretches when they were minor leaguers or, you know, having familiarity with it as they have gone down on rehab assignments and whatnot. So I don't know. We've we've been proven wrong before, and there have definitely been times where the league has implemented a rule change, and then we observe unintended consequences, and we have to either roll the rule change back or alter it. But I just don't. I don't think this is going to be a place where people say, "Oh no," yeah. You know, they're just gonna. The thing is, they're just gonna uh, abide by the pitch clock, and it'll be fine. Probably. So yeah. I don't think, as a rule, that we should try to have a, a ton of difference in the way that the postseason is is formatted from a rules perspective versus the regular season because so much about the postseason is already strange, right? And it yes. already has idiosyncratic kind of incentives that aren't present in the regular season. And, you know, it would be one thing if we were actually seeing games, say, decided by a zombie runner mm -hmm. in the postseason. I went to the Fall League Championship game uh, this past that? weekend. It was cold, Ben. <laughs> it was mostly cold. It was mm -hmm. sloppy. There was there was some good stuff in it, but it was it was kind of a sloppy evening of baseball. Uh, both teams ended up being kind of error prone and the catching was really bad. 
Oh God, the catching was really bad. So, but it also, it went to extras and they played with the zombie runner in extra innings mm-hmm. for a championship game, Ben, <laughs> for a championship well, game. Don't love that. Yeah, I don't love that. We don't like the zombie runner even in the regular season. But like when you are thinking about the stakes of the playoffs versus the trade-off of a little extra time saved, you don't want the zombie runner, right? It feels weird to have a, a gifted runner decide the postseason. Cursed runner, not gifted. Yeah. Cursed. Cur- cursed. <laughs> gifted to the, the hitting yes. team yes, is of my course. point. I know. So like there, it's important for there to be a rule difference between the two formats for the competitive integrity of the postseason, right? Mm -hmm. So I get that argument. Plus, we hate the zombie runner anyway. So, you know, any instance (laughs) where we get to escape from zombies, we're, we're in favor of that. But I think for something like this, it's going to become so natural to the way that baseball players just play baseball that it will end up by the time the regular season is over striking folks as odd if we were to go back it would be like if suddenly i don't know that it's quite like this but i feel like it is much closer to what it would feel like if we suddenly said no in the postseason you have to actually throw the pitches for an intentional walk versus the regular season it's like well okay but why would we do that like we're just used to this other thing now you know it's not quite like that and i think the opportunity for us to need to you know maybe tweak how long they have might exist and we have to think about how it interacts with some of the pickoff stuff and so like there might be stuff that we end up you know finagling a little bit there but i don't this doesn't strike me as as wholly necessary Nope, me neither. And I don't think it's just because I'm anti-zombie runner and pro-pitch clock, though that is true. But I think, I mean, if he's saying like, well, we need to not mess with these guys in the moments when it matters the most, I think if they've been pitching with a pitch clock the entire season, it would be messing more with them to go back to no pitch clock at that point. So there's that. And also, I think the zombie runner, much as I loathe it, it doesn't actually affect how you play the game so much, right? I right. mean, for the, the actual pitchers who are pitching and the hitters are, who are hitting, they're largely doing the same thing. There might be more bunting or, or other strategic changes, but the actual like swinging and pitching and your routine, that stays the same. Whereas with the pitch clock, that could be different or you could be tempted to have it right. be different. So I think it would be more disruptive to have a change from one to the other, from the regular season to the postseason, yeah. than it would be for the zombie runner, which is just like all of a sudden at some point you just decide that it is easier to score now and you just get free runners on base. But other than that, you're basically just playing baseball. So it makes a mockery of the sport in my mind, but it doesn't really change all that much what the hitters and pitchers are actually doing mechanically, whereas the pitch clock could, I think, maybe in beneficial ways. The other thing is that you could make a case that the postseason is when you most need the pitch clock yes. from an entertainment yes. and spectator standpoint, right? For sure. The postseason bogs down. I mean, that's oh, yeah. when games are longest and slowest. So that's when you want your jewel events that everyone is watching in theory, most eyeballs on those games. Well, you want them to be snappy and you want them to be entertaining. And yeah. it's not great if when everyone is paying attention to baseball, your best advertisement for the sport, it's a slog because everyone is slowing down because of the stakes so i would argue that if anything is as long as it isn't too disruptive you would want to speed games along even more during the postseason so yeah i disagree i think scott boris he's got a lot of good ideas he's got a lot of good proposals for the sport I don't agree with him on this one. Yeah. And I, I also don't agree with him 
He's been a longtime advocate of a neutral site World Series. Yeah. So making this World Series like the Super Bowl, just picking some warm weather city and agreeing in advance where you're going to play it and then having it be this uh, party and showcase and big event. And I think that would be bad. (laughs) I think that would be bad for a few reasons. I think for one thing, I don't know that you could actually fill a ballpark like four to seven times in a neutral city, right? I mean, just because baseball is a regional sport largely, more so than the NFL at least, and there are just many more games. So I, I just don't know that you could sell enough tickets. Like you might have empty ballparks by the end of that series, and that would be a pretty bad look. And then, I I don't know, on top of that, I mean, I guess you could make a case that it's not great for for fans, right, Right. who would not be able to see their team play in their home city after supporting it all season long. And again, it's not just one game, it's several games. So I don't think that's a good idea. I mean, it'd be nice that, like, you could guarantee that the games would be played and the weather would be nice, which is often an issue when October or even early November at this point rolls around. But other than that, I don't think it makes nearly as much sense for MLB. Yeah, I think that that's true for all the reasons you just said. And, you know, I think that when you're trying to have an event like the Super Bowl, like, it is understood that one of the primary motivations of that event from a ticket sales perspective is going to be maximizing revenue. And it's not like World Series tickets are cheap, right? Mm-hmm. But, and you know, they, they're they there to make money. I'm not naive to that idea. But, you know, I know that when, when Seattle, for instance, had their home division series game, like they had a raffle for students and those tickets were like 40 bucks. <laughs> and if you were a student and you won, you know, you, you could go and it was reasonable to do that from a price perspective. And I struggle to think that that would be as big a priority if it were being centralized through the league, because you're right, you don't have the same connection to the to the fan base that is sort of, you know, actually physically present and seeing their team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've seen what raucous home crowds can be like in baseball's postseason in a way yeah. that, you know, it just doesn't translate quite the same way for the Super Bowl. Like that's always like a weirdly quiet and sort of staid crowd. And when there is a fan base that, that manages to travel really well, which I don't say to chide the fan bases that don't, like it's god awful expensive to go to the Super Bowl, but like it's notable when you can hear a particular fan base sort of breaking through what is largely a corporate event. So I'm not about it. Plus, I I think that (laughs) the unfortunate reality is that the number of ballparks where you really know for sure you're going to have sort of protection from weather, I think is maybe not as expansive as people (laughs) seem to think it is, right? Like a lot of the warm weather ballparks are in an area of the country where you're going to be vulnerable to tropical storms. And we've seen the effect that that can have, you know, in recent years. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know that the weather benefit is quite as as starkly laid out for a neutral site versus not. I mean, I guess that if we did all of them in, you know, I don't know, Arlington, but even there you can still end up with, with funkiness. So I don't know. I think keep them, keep them at home. You can't, mm-hmm. Scott, you can't be taken away home playoff games when the Mariners just got some home <laughs> got a yeah. home playoff game. What do you yeah. no, can't yeah. do that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I don't really see why he says that it would command more attention if you had it in a neutral site. I think he proposed this at least ostensibly because he thinks that baseball should be more than a regional game and that it should command national or international attention. And I'm with him on that, but I don't really see how holding it in one city would achieve that. Most people are just going to watch on TV anyway. I don't know why they would be more likely to watch just because it's in a warm weather place and in the same ballpark or the same city the whole time. So I don't really see the benefit. I could see the benefit if you're Scott Boris, maybe. Sure. You're going to go and you can plan in advance on where you're going and you can have a big Boris Corp presence and you can have a nice reception and a party and everything and you don't have to wait until the last minute to know where that's going to be. So for baseball bigwigs who just kind of want to be seen and press some flesh and everything, I I see why it would be preferable and maybe you get to go somewhere warm instead of somewhere cold. But yeah, I don't really see why it would notably be in the best interest of baseball. Yeah. And I mean, first of all, any opportunity... We have to use the phrase press the flush as one that we should decline. I'm not criticizing your use of it. I'm just saying. Yeah, it really depends on what flesh you're pressing specifically. Oh, no. So, yeah, I mean, I I get when you look at, you know, we have examples of this even within baseball. Like there were a bunch of events around L.A., for instance, when I was there for the All-Star game and the draft this year. And like it, it did have an energy to it, but I don't see how like that energy outside of the game would necessarily outweigh the experience you'd have watching it on TV or even being there in person when you just have like home fans who can go. Yeah. So I don't like that one. I like a lot of Scott's ideas, but Mm -hmm. I'm a pass on that one, I think. Yep, me too. Yeah, we like his uh, his big picture ideas, but perhaps not as they pertain to the postseason, at least in these two cases. All right, so we're going to do a, a double draft today. This is something that has been done on Effectively Wild in the past. We've had this double draft, this start of the offseason, and it is one, the free agent contracts over unders draft. I believe this is the eighth annual instance of that draft. And then we're also going to do the World Series Odds Movers draft, Mm -hmm. which has been done several times, but I think it's been a few years since the last one of those. So we're bringing it back and we'll be combining both of those in this episode. Just before we get to that, now that the midterms are over or mostly over, I guess we we turn our attention. <laughs> You're saying this to a person who lives in Arizona. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more over in some places than yeah, others. Yeah. But we will turn our attention to baseball voting and elections and results, yeah. not just Hall of Fame, but this is awards week. Yeah. And we don't make that huge a deal of awards week. I think uh, we're less awards forward than some. I, I've kind of moved on from awards and adopted the general stance that what happened happened and I can come to my own conclusions and who wins the awards doesn't sway me all that much but it's still something to talk about and something people pay attention to and you had a vote (laughs) so we teased this a while back and you haven't been able to divulge it but we are recording just a few hours before the announcement of the rookie of the year votes yeah and So by the time this episode is posted, those will be out there and your vote will be too. And thus we can dissect it now. And I don't know whom you voted for. So this will be a surprise to me too. 
And again, like we don't know who won at, as we speak now. And there's not that much suspense for me, even though these are extremely close races in both leagues. I guess for me, it's just whoever wins is fine. <laughs> Basically, like there were so many good choices yeah. that if it's one of the Atlanta Braves candidates in the NL or if it's Rutschman in the AL or if it's Julio in, in the AL, like these are all good players yeah. who will probably go on to good careers. And so I guess the only thing that would really surprise me if it was very lopsided one way or the other, it seems like it probably should be pretty close. But yeah. you had you had an NL vote, so not an I easy did. decision. I had an NL Rookie of the Year vote, and I voted for Brendan Onovan. No, um, <laughs> I did put him in, Joey Manessis. in third. Yeah, Joey Manessis. <laughs> so I ended up casting my vote for Michael Harris the second, And right. I, I want to preface what I'm about to say with a couple of things. I want to reiterate just because I think that it is something that is it is useful for people who consume the results of these votes to like be aware of how the electorate might engage with some of the issues that are sort of tangential to the vote. So it luckily did not end up being an issue in this case because Michael Harris II signed an extension. Spencer Strider signed an extension. Both of them were likely to be top two vote getters regardless. But I just want to say again that like when I found out that I had a rookie of the year vote, it was prior to both of those things being true mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of the extensions. And again, it seemed likely that they were both going to end up in the top spot. And Strider was up, you know, from the get go this year. So like his him attaining a year of service time wasn't really on the table, but it did make me very, very uncomfortable that I was potentially going to help set the timeline for when Michael Harris reached free agency or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in talking with my fellow BBWA members who had votes, that seemed to be a recurring theme for them as well, right? And it ended up not mattering. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It, didn't ma- it doesn't matter in the AL race either because, you know, Julio signed his big deal. It seems likely that if Julio wins, that Rutschman will be in the second spot. And so he'll just get a year of service time, right? But mm-hmm. I want folks to know that, like, we think about that part. And it is a, a weird position to be put in. It doesn't seem like the purpose that we originally envisioned as an association for these votes. So, like, that made me nervous and then relieved. So there's that. I also want to say that, like, I went back and forth on this, Ben. Oh, my God. I went back and (laughs) forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I will be completely candid. I think my vote is defensible. I think that Michael Harris II is a worthy rookie of the year. But if I had gone back and forth on it one more time, I might have talked myself into voting for Spencer Stryer. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, either one is this obviously worthy like yeah in many years yeah so and a couple of things i think that recommend michael harris also recommend spencer strider in that you know michael harris so first of all we should remark on the fact that like michael harris is as of this moment 21 years old in eight months like he was doing what he was doing in the big leagues at the age that like a lot of college draftees are still playing college ball right so there's that piece of it there's the fact that he had very limited time in the minor leagues you know he lost the 2020 season entirely as everyone did and he just didn't have a lot of minor league run and then he comes up to the big leagues I think that we kind of knew where some of Harris's vulnerabilities stood in terms of his profile and we saw you know the overcoming some of those vulnerabilities and still being very good version of him in his rookie campaign right he doesn't walk a lot he tends to strike out a lot there's chase in the profile right and you worry about 
him getting sort of figured out. And if you watched him in the early going, like he underwent a swing change early in his big league tenure in front of everybody and it worked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's incredible, especially for a guy where like the swing and miss was like the thing we were kind of worried about with him. So I found that in conjunction with just the, the variety of places that he was able to bring really profound value to his team to be sort of the thing for me, right? Like in addition to posting a 136 WRC plus, he stole 30 bases. He played really great defense in center field. So he just had a variety of of ways that he could bring a lot of value to the club. And, you know, when you're, I, I hope that no one is looking at rookie of the year or any vote and just saying, well, here, let's rank the wars. But like he and he and Strider, I think had 0.1 win of difference between them by our version of war the the gaps were wider for other outlets that have a a war Mm -hmm. so there's that but the way that i was thinking about it is these guys really brought the same amount of value to the braves they brought it in different ways but they brought a tremendous amount of value now strider you know he went from being a bullpen guy to being what he was as a starter. So he also had to undergo a transformation at the big league level and did it, you know, with a plum, right? Mm-hmm. So again, I went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But, you know, to me, sort of just the completeness of Harris's campaign, the variety of ways that he brought value to the team ended up being the thing. But again, mm-hmm. if I had had one more turn, maybe I would have been like, yeah, but like, <laughs> look at Strider. And I will say, it would not surprise me if Harris you know, has a lot of seasons in his big league career where he accumulates less war than this, right? I still Mm -hmm. think that there is uh, vulnerability in his profile at the plate. And so if I had to take a a sort of bet on who is going to have the more productive big league career, I don't know how I would answer that. I still think that Harris is vulnerable. Strider is a pitcher, so they're always just prone to breaking. And we saw the injury stuff for him a little bit this year but you know for me and i think this is true for everyone like the rookie of the year vote isn't a isn't a forward looking vote that's not its purpose we're not casting a preemptive hall of fame vote we're saying who had the mm-hmm. best rookie season and so i ended up going with harris i think he's a tremendous player i mostly think that this vote just illustrates the incredible position that Atlanta finds itself in when it comes to the young contributors on their roster. And we've talked about that as every single one of them, except for Dansby Swanson, <laughs> signed an extension, right? So we don't have to believe her at that point, but they really are just in a very enviable spot from a core perspective. You know, we might look at each of the individual extensions that their young players have signed and hoped that maybe in some cases they had signed for more money, in some cases a lot more money, but it's a really, really good group. And I'm excited to see what they do but that doesn't matter for the rookie of the year vote among that really really good group is michael harris the second and he got my vote yeah that's uh perfectly understandable to me i'm so stressed about it though ben (laughs) which is stupid because it's not about me at all and it's a defensible vote so it's not like i'm gonna totally you know but like i i had a really hard time i really struggled going back and forth between them because strider had such an exemplary year and you know if this is one of those years where they ended up tied they won't but like if they did i'd be like cool everybody Mm -hmm. gets what they want and hopefully atlanta fans look at this and appreciate the like difficulty that we all had in in ranking them i imagine strider's gonna get a 
fair share of first place votes, and I wouldn't be remotely surprised if he won. I don't think I will be in Dan Zimborski's position from last year where he was <laughs> a voice in the wilderness. <laughs> right, yeah. So that's nice because I am at my core uh, anxious and praise seeking. So, you know, <laughs> being alone on an island would feel bad. But I think that given how great Michael Harris's season was, I, I'm not likely to be in that position. Yeah, he voted for Trevor Rogers, right? He was the only one who gave Trevor Rogers a first place vote. Is Correct. I believe yeah. that that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think anyone will give you grief for voting for Harris. I don't think anyone would have if you'd voted for Strider. I have not analyzed this in anything like the depth you did because I did not have an award vote. So I don't know what I would have decided had I had one, had I had this one in particular. But my sense, my gut is that I probably would have leaned the same way. And it could have gone either way. Like if Strider had even made a couple more starts at the end of the season, right? Because he at the oblique and he missed a couple starts like who knows maybe that swings it I guess you could say also he could have made the rotation a little bit earlier but you could also say Harris could have been called up earlier so if either one of them had gotten significantly more playing time or a different role then that might have made it an easier decision but as it was it was a really tough decision and they were both just like transformative Atlanta was so so much better after a slow start once Harris was up And once Strider was starting and and there were other things going on as well that made them better. But but those two, (laughs) those were huge midseason internal upgrades that that changed the complexion of that roster. So they both had huge impacts. And obviously Atlanta wanted to be in business with both of them for for many more years to come. And they even got sort of similar, at least total dollars committed to them in their extensions that they signed. So yeah, there's just, there's not a lot of daylight. I guess like... Maybe I I like Strider's skill set slightly more, but also I trust position players more. So just in general, so I get it would be it would be tough to even choose one or the other. But but they both exceeded expectations. Oh yeah, I mean they were they were prospects, but they were not prospects so elite that you would expect them to come up and and be four or five win players or whatever on day one essentially so so they both exceeded first season expectations and and that had a a huge deal to do with how well the Braves did so Yeah. yeah it was fun to watch both of them yeah it made it the fact that they had sort of parallel trajectories in a strange way made it even as I said made it harder right because they both underwent a change as they got to the big leagues they both didn't play a a totally full complement of a season right like Harris had 441 plate appearances and Strider threw 131.2 innings so it wasn't you know so you had that to contend with you had the sort of obvious transformative impact they had on the roster that they were on and they both checked that box they as you said were both like you know prospects but not top top prospects Michael Harris the second was a, a 50 future value for us so he was on the top 100 but you know Strider was I think a 45 plus so they were guys who were on the radar but not you know they weren't top 10 guys they weren't neither of them was the number one overall prospect right you look at Harrison it was funny as I was doing my research you go back through you know I went and I read everybody's prospect reports on him because I was kind of curious and it's like all of them say well we won't see him in the big leagues this year (laughs) yeah right and then there he was you know 
And mm-hmm. so it was a real challenge. I feel kind of tortured about it, but that's not really the point. The The point is that both of these guys put up incredible years. And mm-hmm. I think this entire rookie class is just such a joy to watch. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was going to say that, like, regardless of which one of these guys wins in the NL or which one of the, the great already superstars wins in the AL, this really was a historic class, at least for elite rookies. And yeah. And wrote about this and I think mentioned it on the podcast at the time, but just the depth of the the top of the class of, of this year's rookies is just really formidable and, and unparalleled. There were six rookie position players who had four or more baseball reference war, which was two more than in any previous season. There were four rookie position players who got to five baseball reference war. That was a first. So really, just like the number of players who who played at an all-star level or even above as rookies was was really impressive, particularly the the position players. The the pitchers a little thinner behind Strider and and whether that's just because teams are careful with pitchers these days or some post pandemic hangover and post lockout hangover or just the reduction in the role of starting pitchers in general i don't know but for hitters for position players it was really a banner year yep and i will also say just because there is a, a sizable differential in fangraphs war and baseball reference war when it comes to strider or you know it's not like huge but it, it's enough that it makes it a, a toss-up, you know, war-wise, yeah. whereas it, it seems like a clear-cut decision according to Baseball Reference War. And I'll just say, like, I look at both. I just cited Baseball Reference War. I'm not a, a company man here. I don't even work for Fangraphs, so I wouldn't <laughs> be working for the company even if I were just citing Fangraphs War. But for pitchers, I really do prefer Fangraphs War. And look, it's sort of a philosophical thing, and I don't mind having the two of them with their different ways of of arriving at answers, but I really do find that that Fangraph's approach to pitcher war is preferable in my mind, and not just because it's more predictive, although it is – but I think it's just more descriptive also of of past events because people I've talked about this before often in awards week, and maybe this will be relevant to some other awards conversations this week. But people say, well, FIP, which is what Fangraphs War is based on, is this imaginary stat and it's like a what if and it's here's what could have happened. Whereas Baseball Reference War, which for pitchers is based on runs allowed, well, that's what actually did happen. And so that's retrospective and FIP is forward looking and for awards votes. We should only care about what did happen. But in my mind, that is a misconception, and I don't see it that way because FIP, the whole idea of FIP is is that it's what's under the pitcher's control directly. And obviously, like, there's some squishiness there. And yeah, there are some pitchers who have some slight ability to actually induce weaker contact and beat their BABIPs and everything. But in general, like, if you want to tell how a pitcher did, not just how they will do, but but how they did, you have to look at the factors under their control. And so we look at home runs and strikeouts and walks, and that's a, a pretty good guide and they're more complex and and fancier stats out there but FIP does a decent job of that and so for me it's predictive because it is more descriptive like it's not predictive because it's some abstract here's what could have happened like imaginary scenario it's more predictive of what will happen in the future because it actually does a better job of capturing what that player did in that year 
not what the defense did, not what the luck was, but how responsible that pitcher was for his success. And in fact, Tom Tango just did a, a little study at his blog this week, which I will link to on the show page, but he looked at the year-to-year consistency of Fangraphs War versus Baseball Reference War, and he found that for position players, it seems to be roughly equivalent, that each one does about the same job of predicting, you know, Fangraphs War from this year predicts Fangraphs War next year roughly as well as Baseball Reference War this year predicts Baseball Reference War next year, and adding one to the other doesn't really add a whole lot of signal. They're essentially doing sort of the same thing with some different inputs, but with Pitcher War, there is a difference where not only does Fangraphs War predict future Fangraphs War better than Baseball Reference War predicts Baseball Reference War, but current Fangraphs War actually predicts future Baseball Reference War better than Baseball Reference War does, (laughs) which, you know, usually a stat would predict itself better than some other stat. But FIP is predictive. It's a better guide of future ERA than ERA itself is, and it's a better guide of future baseball reference war even than baseball reference war is because of the luck and the defensive support and all these things and and baseball reference adjusts for for some of that but a lot of it is just like the sequencing of how things happened is kind of baked into that stat and that may not be predictive and it may also not be indicative of the performance of the player as opposed to just these extraneous factors so all those things combined to make me think that Fangraphs War is better. I, I kind of default to it when it comes to pitchers. And so that makes this Rookie of the Year race look closer than right. other metrics do, which made your job harder. <laughs> but, yeah. but I still think you came to a, a good decision. Thank you. Yeah. I think it's useful to look look at everything and try to you know, discern signal through the noise because every site does it a little bit differently you know there are going to be places where like I think if I remember correctly like his um when you look at Michael Harris's warp mm-hmm. it's quite low compared to the other sites war part of mm-hmm. that is because DRC plus doesn't believe in Harris and you know like okay that's mm-hmm. fine I get why there's some reservation there but also it's in part because FRA hates his <laughs> hates uh-huh. his strong but do- isn't a huge fan of his defense so uh, you know you gotta like look at each of these things and then sort of discern what you think the the real answer is because everything is giving you useful inputs it's just that some of them I think are uh, closer to how I understand allocating and attributing value than others so yeah. yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> it's hard, but like it could be. Here's here's the thing. Like next year, it wouldn't be surprising to me if like we see Chase, and then it's like, oh god, that you know that ground ball rate for Harris is terrifying, and mm-hmm. he's not able to leg it out the way he was this year. And then we see you know the power not really take a step forward, even though he mm-hmm. did manage to hit 19 home runs this year. Which given that how his his power would actualize in games was sort of a question is like good but you know that's all next year right yeah no uh, given good health for both of them which is not a given i would probably prefer to have strider next season alone but that doesn't invalidate your vote that has no bearing on your vote really so yeah yeah, i mean i think it's nice when someone who goes on to have a great career also was recognized as a rookie 
not that like it's bad if if someone who has one year, yeah. one season in the sun also gets to take a bow and celebrate, even if the rest of their career is not really commensurate with that. That's okay, too. <laughs> Either way, it's fine. It's just you look back in retrospect and you say, huh, him, right? He won? Right. Okay. Yeah. Whereas with some guys, it's like, yes, he won. And that was the coronation and the beginning of a long and illustrious career. But one way or another. Anyway... Anyone who's listening to this knows or has the capacity to know who won this vote by the time you're listening to this. For anyone who effectively wild is your sole news source about baseball, which uh, that's very flattering. I will mention at the end of the episode who actually won. There are other places you can obtain baseball news. So that information is, is out there, but thank you. And yeah, I was spared a difficult decision. Again, I've never had an awards vote, an end of season awards vote because I'm in the New York chapter of the BBWAA and there are many, many other writers in that chapter and the vote just rotates and it's just a subset of voters, a small subset who gets to vote on any individual award. And so I still have never had one. Yeah. This would have been a fun year to have one, but also a challenging year to have one, which reminds me, I got to figure out what, if anything, I'm doing with my Hall of Fame ballot this year. But that's a conversation for another day. We got a draft. So the first draft that we're doing that we always do is the free agent contracts over-unders draft. And for this, it's tradition. We use the MLB Trade Rumors top 50 free agents list, which has predicted contracts. And the idea is that we find places where we differ with their predictions and their estimates of what certain players will make. And we either take the over or the under on those. And then we get a $10 million bonus if we pick in the right direction. And on top of that, if we pick in the right direction, then we get the difference between the estimate and what the contract actually was, just going by total guaranteed dollars. That is what we use for that. So Mm -hmm. if someone is predicted to make $50 million and we think they'll make 60, and then, or we don't even have to say what we think they'll make. We just have to pick directionally over under. So if we think they'll make more than 50 and we are right, they end up making 60, let's say. Then we get a $10 million bonus just for being right and for choosing the right direction. And then we get another $10 million bonus for the difference between the predicted $50 million contract and the actual $60 million contract. And then we each draft eight players and we add up just the the cumulative. Did we get everything right? We we add up the positives and the negatives and hopefully we were right in, in the right direction. But whoever gets the most amount of money in the end wins the draft. So we've had some tough ones in recent years because we had just no idea what was going to happen with the offseason in general and, and the market. And I guess there's more reason for optimism this year when it comes to that. Like I looked back at at our drafts from last year and we did this with Ben Clemens last year and we all had more under picks than overs. I don't know whether that will be the case this year or not, but there was pessimism just because we were coming off pandemic and we were heading for a a lockout potentially and just no one knew if anyone was going to be willing to spend This offseason, I'm more bullish about spending in general. I certainly still have some unders on my board. But I think given just the prevailing environment here, now, of course, you you have not the greatest economy (laughs) in the country, so that's something. 
But in baseball specifically, you're coming off record revenues yet again. Revenues bounce back to be higher than they'd ever been before. Perhaps not inflation adjusted, but in raw dollars. And you're heading for an offseason where you aren't anticipating any attendance limitations next year and you're not anticipating any work stoppages. So things can kind of proceed as they used to normally in a quote-unquote regular offseason. And I think some of the early returns, some of the deals that have been signed so far – were maybe above my expectations. Edwin Diaz was maybe a bit more than I would have expected, more than Zips projected, although we learned that some good deal of dollars in his deal, those are deferred. So that Mm. brings down the the present day value of it. But Mm. between that and the Rafael Montero deal and the Robert Suarez deal, right? Like those both sort of surprised me. In in fact, Ben Clemens just wrote about that for Fangraphs because he didn't have either of those guys on the Fangraphs top 50, right? And in retrospect, he regrets that maybe, but it's, you know, those guys, like each of them has has one year of being a, a back-end dependable guy in right. MLB, and Suarez has a longer track record in international ball, but, you know, they're 31, 32, and not long major league track records, and yet they got paid. <laughs> so, I mean, they got multi-year deals, they got, what was it, Suarez got Five years, was it? I think that's right. But there's some wrinkle to that deal, if I yeah. recall correctly. Like there are some opt-outs and options. And yeah, and it's, it's five years, 46. And right, there's there's some other stuff. There's some always some stuff. But there's that. And then Montero resigned with the Astros, three years and 34.5 million. So yes. just all those deals just kind of make me think, okay, like I don't know that we're, we're heading for, for boom times, but I'm not pessimistic about the amount of money that will be spent at least so yeah yeah suarez was three years 30 million to start and then there's a opt-out before two more years that are at eight million a piece that's how that Mm -hmm. actually shakes out and there are also some incentives in there based on how many games suarez ends up finishing so all right well there are a few contracts here that are already off the board. Cause, yeah. Because uh, players I was like, signed. Can, can I draft Rafael Montero? I'll take <laughs> yeah. the over. Yeah, that would be a great pick because their estimate for Montero was three years and 24. Yeah. So the over would have been good, but we're too late. And, yeah. And we should say we're we're drafting a day before the qualifying offer decisions are due. Correct. So there's some uncertainty there, as there usually is when we do these drafts. And uh, and Clayton Kershaw is, is off the board as well. Right. And uh, he was a, what, one-year, $20 million prediction by MLB Trade Rumors, which is what he got, right? Yeah. That leads me to a question I had, which is, Ben, I struggled picking my overs and unders because a lot of these I looked at and I was like, that seems about right. Mm -hmm. You know? (laughs) Yeah. They know what they're doing over there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you'd think that they would. I mean, they've been doing this for, for many years. Right. And they pay, if anything, closer attention to these things than I do, at least. Yeah. So you'd think that they would know what the market is. So, yeah, there weren't so many that I thought, that's that's wild. That's way off. Right. So and, and I think that's been the case with some of these recent drafts. So uh so yeah, they, they know what they're doing. We're not we're not mocking their no. their predictions oh, no, or no. anything. I'm famously averse to predictions and 
don't think I'm especially good at them. So <laughs> I, I don't want to dump on anyone who, who puts their numbers out there. And also, like, they're predicting contracts for many players, and we're just cherry-picking and, and looking for a few that, right. that seem off to us. So it's it's easier to be right when you can pick and choose that way. Anyway, yeah. I guess that's enough prelude to this draft. Yeah. We didn't decide who's who's going first here. I I, I won this last year. So uh, if this is going like like MLB draft style, then I, I guess you should get the first pick. <laughs> Does that make sense? Sure. Um, <laughs> I well, I oh, uh, <laughs> our listeners are like, oh great, we get to listen to Meg interacting with the draft again. Our very favorite thing. And your first pick. <laughs> so okay, part of my hesitation is that I don't want to be a downer, but I'm gonna be. I'm going to be a little bit of a downer. and Yeah, we should say, like, we're not rooting for players to make less no. money when we choose an under. Like, you know, I hope they all get lots of money. Right. This is a zero stakes draft. Like, it right. doesn't matter that much. So we're we're not rooting for less spending. We're yeah. just trying to predict which way the market will blow. And and just to reiterate, we are drafting based on the total contract value listed here, yes. right? Not the yes. average annual value. Correct. That's important for my first pick. Okay. I am taking the under on Justin Verlander, $120 uh-huh. million. That was on my board. Yep. I think that Justin Verlander will sign a rich contract, to be clear. Mm-hmm. You know, we have all of the usual caveats. Well, we have very unusual caveats when it comes to Verlander, I guess I should say, because in addition to his age, it is super unusual for a guy his age coming off of Tommy John to, well, to pitch big league innings at all, let alone to pitch yeah. as good a ones as he did this year and as many. I imagine that he will kind of clean up from an AAV perspective, but I imagine he will get maybe two years Mm -hmm. and not three. And so I imagine that he will fall short of the $120 million that they have predicted for him here. Mm -hmm. So that's my, that's my under. Um, Yeah. He might match their AEV, to be clear. If he did $40 million a year, I'd be like, yeah, all right, fine. Yeah, totally. But I could see him, you know, I could see a number of things happening here. I could see teams reticent to give him a third year. I think that will be true for sure. I could see Verlander pursuing, as as Ben wrote when he wrote him up for the top 50, like maybe pursuing something kind of novel from a contract perspective and maybe wanting to go shorter himself so that he can prove that he can pitch a bunch of innings again. And good ones, and then maybe wants to hit the market again. So there's a lot of ways that this could end up falling short of three years, but I think that most of the likely scenarios um, seem to have him there. Although I guess we should allow when it comes to Verlander, particularly because he is, well, he's not currently an Astro, but was most recently an Astro, that we have some surprising unpredictability when it comes to what Houston will do with themselves this offseason because they are no longer helmed by James Click. I paid attention Mm -hmm. to baseball news while I was on (laughs) vacation. I know what happened. Yeah. I was the, I paid attention, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. How much of Rafael Montero is is y- y- you know like yeah. Kramer wanting to like have his say? So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see, but I think that he Verlander will end up making less than 120 million. So I think you said Jim Kramer. Did I? Jim, did yeah. I? <laughs> I think you did. Yeah, just a different different money guy. Different. Um... <laughs> yes. If you, if you want to say. That. I don't know. Uh, I do want to re-say because the okay. guy who runs uh, owns the Astros is Jim Crane. 
Yes. He's, he's the principal owner. I think you should leave it in. Can I give a small aside <laughs> and then I'll let us get back to the draft? Sure. I wonder if other people have noticed this, that whenever you watch a documentary about like terrible corporate malfeasance, <laughs> you know, like say you're watching something on the Theranos folks or any mm-hmm. of the number of Netflix docs. FTX folks. <laughs> right. Perhaps. In Coming the soon. beginning yeah. of the doc... There's Jim Cramer saying, bye, bye, bye. And at the end of the doc, there's Jim Cramer being like, I don't know. They sure ended up being wily. And it's like, why do we keep listening to this guy? He seems to get had a lot. Anyway, I don't know if Jim Crane gets had a lot. He's probably ruthless in a way that prevents that. But um, yeah, I think leave it all in, Ben. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that, that I was going to make the same pick for the same reasons. And Scherzer got three years when he was considerably younger than Verlander is now. Like Verlander now is about a year and a half older than Scherzer currently is, but Scherzer signed that deal last year. So Verlander is going to turn 40 in February and he has said he wants to pitch until he's 45. And given that he is the presumptive Cy Young award winner, you know, and he's got a fresh UCL, I, I wouldn't totally bet against him pitching in some form until then if he's really committed to doing that. But I don't think unless he's like so committed to doing that that he's like, give me the five-year deal now. I want to make it official or whatever. I don't I don't think that is going to happen now. Like he could command three. He's, you know, coming off a, a Cy Young year probably. Like you, you got a lot of leverage. So if you were willing to go lower AAV, I, I guess it's possible. But if he were going to go lower AAV, then he might not make it to this total anyway. So right. – yeah, I think it's a good pick. And and he seems happy in Houston and yeah. maybe he'd give them a discount or he'd just not want to test the market really. So so yeah, good pick. All right. I'm also going to go with an under for my first pick and that is Josh Bell. Mm, yeah, he was on my list too. Yeah, four years and 64 million. I just I don't see it. Yeah. I, I just I don't I don't see that happening. I I see that happening like a decade or two ago maybe. Yeah. But now I I don't. And he ended the season in a big slump, right? Yeah. So a- after he got traded from the Nationals to the Padres, he had a 79 WRC plus in San Diego, and he was like half a win below replacement level. And he had started the season great with the Nationals. So the fact that he ended the season the way he did and just the fact that he's kind of a, a limited player, you know, he's he's just a, a slugger and he's not going to he's going to hurt you on the bases and he's not going to help you on defense like he's each of the last two seasons. He's been a two war player. And I guess you could say that if the dollars per win going raid is is 8 million or something like that. I've kind of lost track of what it actually is because things have been so weird for the past few years. But if it's something like that, well, then you could say that a two-war player is worth like $16 million a year. And this is just $16 million a year for the next four years. But that is presuming that he's not going to get any worse over that right. time, even though he is 30 years old already. Yeah. So between that and the way he ended this season – I just I don't see any team committing to to that kind of length or that kind of dollar value. So, you know, sorry, Josh, I hope you can beat my expectations here. But yeah, that that seemed that was the one that stood out to me is like, huh, this this seems like it's hailing from a a different era. I don't know that this type of player is being paid that kind of way anymore. Yeah, I think that that's right. He was on my list for those reasons. All right. (sighs) Am I going to be a bummer again? (laughs) I think I might be a bummer again, Pat. Okay. I'm going to take the under on Aaron Judge. 
Oh, all right. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how confident do I feel about that, though, Ben? Well, it's out there now. (laughs) No backsies. No backsies? I can't can't even have one backsie? Mm. So, look. He just had, obviously, a... Okay, to be clear, I don't think he's going to be under by a lot. Mm -hmm. Eight years, 332. Eight years, 332 million is the estimate that that they have. I think he'll sign a $300 million deal, Mm -hmm. probably. But I don't think he's going to get 332. I don't. I don't think he will. I think that he had a remarkable season. I think that it has dramatically changed to... Judges benefit the projection that certainly that Zips had for him in terms of anticipated contract. But I also think that while he was remarkable with the bet, and that is likely to sustain itself, even if it's not likely to reach these same highs again, you know, not that he won't be great. He just probably won't be, you know, the second coming of Barry Bonds great, right? Mm-hmm. Although not in terms of how many home runs he hit in a single season. I'm not, that's not what I'm doing. I'm just saying he had a remarkable offensive year, even when you set aside the home runs, which would be crazy to do. But even if you do it, it was a great year. Mm -hmm. But I do think that teams will be cognizant of the age, Mm -hmm. right? I think that while he was totally respectable in center field when he was required to play center field this year, He is not a natural center fielder, and I don't think that, you know, if he ends up signing something like an eight-year contract, he's certainly not going to be playing center field in the back half of that deal, right? No. So there's there's that piece that you're paying for a corner guy. A lot for a corner guy, but a corner guy. And so I think that he will be someone's very splashy signing, if not the Yankees, which... I, I don't know how likely I find it that he will be a, in pin, in Yankee pinstripes. We say in pinstripes a lot. And, you know, there are a lot of pinstripes, Ben. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not just Yankees. All these teams, they have a bunch of teams, they have pinstripes. Yeah, so, East Coast bias, New York bias. Yeah, they shouldn't get, get to over. own pinstripes. <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, I could see, I could certainly see the Yankees saying, look, we offered you what amounted to... 213 million and seven years of new money and contract, right? And you had this incredible year and your value to us as the face of the franchise is actually a little bit higher than it is for other teams. Like it means something Mm -hmm. for us to be able to retain you, but I don't know that it'll be 332 million. I could see the Giants saying, hey, come be our first big splashy signing in what we anticipate will be, you know, a raft of new spending as we try to challenge for the West. But I still don't think that's $332 million. Basically, I think unless the Mets sign him, he's getting the under of this total mm-hmm. value. Yeah. I don't feel confident. Yeah. I, I feel somewhat confident because I took him second overall <laughs> in my draft pool. But right. $332 just feels feels like a lot. $300? That feels fine. Mm-hmm. Ben's estimate of 315 could see that. Mm-hmm. But I think 332 is just a little rich for my blood. Yeah, I think a lot of teams could come to that conclusion too. I definitely like if I were a team and I I had a need at at these players' respective positions, like I would totally go for Carlos Correa or Trey Turner over Judge given even like 
equal money, I think, let alone a significant difference in money according to these predictions. You know, they have Turner at eight years, 268. They have Correa at nine years, 288. I mean, give me one of those over over Judge at, at 8 and 332. Again, like we're just talking about next year. Right. I, I think Judge probably a, a better projected player than than anyone on this list or almost anyone in baseball. But over that period of time, just given his age and, and his injuries prior to the last couple of years and everything, I yeah, I, I just I don't know. Like he could get there, you know, like maybe the Yankees just act like the old school Yankees yeah. again for a winter and they just blow him out of the water because there really would be a big PR backlash oh, if they man. do not keep him. I don't know how sensitive they are to that. I, you know, like Brian Cashman, I feel like he has such job security. Now he's still like currently unsigned as we speak, but it, it seems like he kind of has that job for life if he wants it. And the Steinbrenners, I think they're they're sort of sitting pretty and just enjoying their appreciating franchise. So I don't know, like they've let other players walk or they haven't spent on the big free agent in the past and they've taken a lot of criticism and they seem to have just weathered it and mostly they've continued to win at least during the regular season so it wouldn't totally shock me if they drew the line at some point but they would definitely get flamed for doing that and yep. I could see Steve Cohen or someone else coming in even just to drive up the price for the Yankees and, and make them really have to pay to keep him but I think the height like people talk a lot about his height you know I've seen Joe Sheehan and, and Keith Law argue that hitters that tall don't age that well and like quoting here from from Keith's free agent ranking and and he actually had judge at at fourth on his free agent list yeah. he had he had Dansby Swanson at third but he cited the the height thing also he said the history of position players six foot seven or taller as they age into the 30s is not promising. Only three players that height have even had 100 at bats in a season at 31 or older Frank Howard, Richie Sexton, and Tony Clark. And the three accounted for just six seasons worth one war or more four from Howard and one each from the other two. All were effectively done by age 35, etc. I don't like base my prediction for Judge on that so much because you're talking about such a small sample to begin with when you're talking about six foot seven hitters or taller. Like they're just there haven't been that many of those guys, period. I mean, I just stat headed. I, I think there have been sixteen total non pitcher hitters who are six seven or, or taller, like in the history of baseball. So I, I don't like, you know, and, and Howard Sexton and Clark are like almost the only ones who were any good really right. other than judge so you know and and maybe like O'Neill Cruz will be another and and there are some others who were okay but like uh, the fact that those 3 who were actually stars at at some point didn't age all that well. I don't know how predictive that is. I mean, yeah. it's, it's somewhat intuitive to me that, that right. maybe a bigger, taller player would be more susceptible to breaking down or having their swing go out of whack or something. So it's not an unreasonable hypothesis. I don't think I'm just saying I'm not that convinced by the small sample of, of three or so. Or, you know, and you can look at like, well, is six, six that different from six, seven? And right. Dave Winfield seemed to age pretty well and was a productive right. old hitter. I don't know. I'm just saying like, I guess I I base it more on Judge's health track record than his height, especially because, as Keith acknowledges, he's just more athletic than than Howard Sexton and and Clark, and he plays different positions, and he's faster, and he's good at defense, and he can run the bases and everything. But yeah, it's definitely 
worrisome, I think, to to have to commit to Judge for that long, or at least relative to some of the other guys who might get deals in the same range. So I think it's reasonable. I definitely see a scenario where he just gets bid up to that amount, just coming off an amazing season. Yeah. It's totally possible that... That's partly at least a media creation and and teams, they just, you know, they don't pay for past performance and they don't pay for future performance by people who are past 30 as much as they used to. And that that could apply even to someone who had as otherworldly a season as Aaron Judge just did. Yep. I think too, like, and it's hard to separate these things because one could argue that part of why he's had the injury issues he's had is because of his size. Mm-hmm. But yep. to me, like the prior track record of injury concern is like a bigger going forward red flag, although he's been pretty healthy the last two yes. years, right? Mm-hmm. But the going forward red flag is more like this is a guy who has been hurt than this is a guy who's tall and i know there's more to the argument there than that i don't mean to be dismissive of it but it's like well he's just been hurt before and we tend to see guys who have been hurt before be hurt again especially when they get into their 30s where it's like you can just sleep wrong and then you're useless for a couple of days (laughs) all right i'm gonna go with a smaller deal here and i'm gonna take the over and that's taylor rogers i'm gonna Mm. go over on taylor rogers at three and 30 and this is partly based on The reliever contracts, the aforementioned reliever contracts that we've seen so far. And Ben Clemens was on recently singing the praises of Taylor Rogers as a free agent when we talked to him. And I found that fairly convincing. And I just think, like, given the track record, if Montero is going to get more than this and Suarez is going to get way more than this, then I could see Rogers getting more than 3 and 30. And really, like, I know that the numbers weren't that great at the end of last season, but depends which numbers you're talking about. And it seems like he was just really, really unlucky late in the season when it came to balls in play or even balls out of play over the fence, just like the BABIP and and the home run per fly ball rate just totally skyrocketed at the end of the year with the Brewers. But really, like the strikeouts and everything were, were still solid. Like he misses a lot of bats. He's been fairly consistent. He's done this. He has closing experience if you want him to do that. He could be a setup guy. I just I feel fairly confident, I guess, about him doing better than a couple of the guys who have signed deals so far, at least relative to three and thirty. Just three and thirty seems like he could he could beat that. I think that that's a good pick. I like that pick a lot. All right. <sighs> Maybe I don't like that we do drafts. It's always such a stressful experience for me. I find it really hard, especially because I don't want to be such a well. I just don't want to be I don't want to totally be like a downer Ben. Yeah. you know I'm nervous about being a downer yeah, we're fine with being wrong we're fine with uh, with people getting the over if we predict the under it's okay I guess that's true I guess that we are we are okay with that I mean I know we're okay with that I think that I'm gonna do this I'm gonna take the over on Carlos Correa who trade rumors estimates at nine years and $288 million. Mm-hmm. I think that Carlos Correa will cross $300 million. Mm-hmm. So I'm taking the over. I think that when, you know, this is such a deep class when it comes to shortstops, and I know that Correa has had his own injury, this and that, in the past, but he is the youngest of the big four, right? He's younger than Bogarts and Swanson yep. and Turner. I think that he will be disinclined to pursue a short contract after what he experienced last year. He had a great, yes. he had a very good year in Minnesota. 
you know, he sort of the reason he was taking the the shorter deal with opt-outs wasn't because he was coming off a lousy season or anything like that. He was just trying to reach a more favorable spending environment. And I think that he has one here. Yep. I tend to think that he is just a very good defender. I don't think that he mm-hmm. is quite as superlative as his 2021 numbers necessarily suggested yeah. he was, but I certainly don't think that he's kind of where he is from an outs above average perspective this year that feels more like a one-year sort of aberration than it does what i witness when watching him and he's just a real darn good hitter i think the one thing that could end up constraining his market a little bit this year is that like you know you think about who are the teams that need a shortstop well one of them is the new york yankees and they mm-hmm. might be a big player but are they gonna be who could say mm-hmm. you know if they spend a bunch of money if they end up they could end up torpedoing two of my picks, Ben. Yeah, right? that's true. Because <laughs> they could give a big old deal to Aaron Judge and then you know, then a meaningful part of Korea's market might dry up and mm-hmm. then they could tank this one too. But yeah. I'm taking the I'm taking the over on Carlos Correa. I think he will be yeah. a $300 million man. Mm-hmm. And I think that whatever team signs him will be pretty happy that they did if yeah. I had to you know, offer a hot, yeah. a hot take. You shopping at the Dior store, you got to go 300 or higher, I think. So, yeah, this is a uh, Dior store, man. <laughs> this is this is smart, I think, cuz Seeker got 325 last right. winter, right? And Yeah, and I like Carlos Correa better than Me Corey too. Seeker. And yeah, uh, Seeker seems like he's going to be a big beneficiary from from banning the shift potentially cuz he's right. the guy who lost the most hits to the the shift yes. it seems like last year. But I don't know that they expected that when they signed him right. and also, I think Correa is just like half a year older now than Seeger was last off season right. because Correa is like half a year younger than than Seeger is now. Right. So yeah, and and Correa, I think he's he's underrated. You know, like he's. I think people understand that he's good, but I think maybe because he's had some durability issues, yes. more so in the past than than very recently, recently. Yeah. and because a lot of his value has come from defense, and he's just kind of well rounded. You know, not yep. someone who has much, if any, black ink, right? But he's on a Hall of Fame trajectory, at least you know, <laughs> putting sign stealing aside. Right. So I, I think he's been really great, and he's a an example of a. Former Rookie of the Year who has uh, had the career that one expects right. for a Rookie of the Year award winner. And yeah, I think that makes sense. You're you're playing in the, the deep end of the pool here. Yeah. You're splashing around with the I'm big splashing. dollar deals, yeah. which is, uh, I guess it's a, a high risk reward or, you yeah. know, it's, it's smart. Like if I get my over on Taylor Rogers, right, I'm not going to get that much from that because right. he's not going to make that much more than 30 million if he makes more at all. But yeah. Correa, yeah, you you could potentially, you know, if he really strikes it rich with the right deal. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, you could look at him and go, okay, so of the guys in that top four, I would probably rank them actually in descending order of likelihood to stay at short the longest. Correa, mm-hmm. Turner, Swanson, Bogarts, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like Bogart seems destined to move off the position in a year or two. Turner... You know, we'll have to see like how Turner's speed interacts with the fielding. There have been times where he has been less good, but he's also had hand injuries. So you're like, what do you do with that when it comes to trade Turner? Swanson's just been fine. He's just been reliably good. I know the metrics kind of go up and down on him, but you watch him and you're like, that's a solid fielder at shortstop. Mm-hmm. And I think Correa, you know, he'll stick there 
the longest and he's also you know the youngest of them so yeah and and he can hit by third base standards like it's not going to be a problem if he has to slide over so yeah so here we are i wish i made it i'm going heist you know i got burned with the unders on the big deals last year did Mm -hmm. i overreact to that who could say (laughs) all right i am going to go under on Sean Manaya mm. at four and fifty-two. Yeah. Now there was definitely a, a time this year when it, it looked like that would have been reasonable. Yeah. But now, given the way he ended the season, given just the always the uncertainty with his health, and like he was on a playoff team and they basically weren't using him in the playoffs by the time the end of the season rolled around. And when they did one time, he got shelled. And He, got, he sure got shelled. Yeah. And yeah. so if he's not being trusted in that situation, is a team going to trust him now for four years for, for that amount of money? I mean, he probably has been worth that amount over the past that number of years. But I just I don't know, just given the durability concerns, given the way he ended the season. No qualifying offer, which at least he's not held back by that, but that could be a sign. (laughs) Why no qualifying offer, right? Because, uh, well, they didn't think that it was wise to give him one, that that he would necessarily make more than that, I guess, or they didn't want him at the qualifying offer amount, even on a one-year deal, potentially. So. That makes you think. Now, you know, you could have a Carlos Rodon situation where they should have given the qualifying offer, but I don't think this is as clear cut as that one. Now, and Rodon, like he had lots of injury concerns too. Right. You know, that was probably a big part of the reason why the White Sox didn't extend him one. But but performance wise, there wasn't as much of an issue, although he did tire down the stretch in the 2021 season. Anyway. I'm just saying it seems like he might even be a a shorter term rebuild the value type after the way he ended that season. So I just I don't know if this combination of length and AAV is attainable for him now. Yeah, I I agree. He was definitely on my list. All right. I'm going to kind of do a similar. I'm taking the under on Andrew Heaney. Uh, Yep. I was going to do that, too. I'm taking the Andrew Heaney under. Mm -hmm. Trade Rumors has him projected for three years and $42 million. You know, Heaney and Tyler Anderson are going to be interesting to consider sort of in conjunction with one another. They're both guys who went to L.A. and, you know, reworked their repertoires and then had some success. And I think we're going to get some interesting sort of perspective on how sticky Dodger pitching changes mm-hmm. are from the from the perspective of the market but the injury history alone with Heaney I think is going to prevent him from getting three years I don't think he'll I, I think that he'll end up signing something pretty far off of 42 million mm-hmm. and you know I don't think he's gonna get to this AAV and you know he has had stretches where he has been really effective and teams want to believe in him they want to believe in him ben because there is interesting stuff in the profile here and you'll look at him and you're like do you ever really give up on a lefty and i don't think they'll give up on him but i don't think they're going to give him 42 million dollars either you know it would be one thing if he had pitched an entire healthy year with la and to his credit like when you saw him emphasize the fastball and then adopt the new slider like there were times early on there where you're like holy crap like yeah look at this andrew heaney Mm -hmm. and then he hit the injured list and he didn't end up pitching all that much i think he threw like 72 innings so he's definitely i think going to sign a deal and every team needs pitching but i don't think that he's going to get 42 million 
Yep. Yeah, this is a, a smart one. I had that on my board. I probably should have gone for it sooner. So, yeah. I. You thought well, I'd go with another big one, didn't you? <laughs> and you're like, I can pick small. I guess while we're on the subject, maybe I'll I'll take the over on Tyler Anderson then because mm. that was on my board as well. And MLB Trade Rumors has him accepting the qualifying offer. So one year, 19.65. And <laughs> I guess we'll know one way or another within a day whether this was a good yeah. pick or, or a bad pick probably. But I, I don't really see the case for Heaney at 342 and Anderson at, at one year with the qualifying offer. Now, uh, maybe that is more a a testament to Heaney being an overestimate than Anderson being an underestimate. And if he (laughs) accepts the qualifying offer, well, at least I won't lose anything, right? That'll just be a push. But it seems like coming off the season that he had, he could command a multi-year deal if he wanted to, right? I mean, I know that he doesn't fit the profile of like a, you know, top of the rotation pitcher these days because he just does not strike out a ton of hitters. But he also doesn't walk anyone. And, you know, like he was another Dodgers reinvention. But like even prior to being with the Dodgers, at least like he'd been more durable, let's say, than than Heaty. Like he had a season where he pitched 167 innings last year. He pitched 178 and two thirds this year. So there's less of a durability concern and more of a performance stuff concern. But Coming off the season he had, I, I just like, I don't know, maybe he'll just decide, hey, the Dodgers were good for me and I want to stay and I don't want to take my chances and this is a lot more than I've made in any one year before, so I'll just be happy with that. Totally possible, but no downside risk, it seems like, for me here, and at least some upside potential. So I'm, I'm going to bank on his market being a bit stronger than this. Yeah, I think that he obviously like the the year he turned in this year was was markedly better than anything he had done before. Mm -hmm. I could see him taking the qualifying offer because it sure is nice to make almost $20 million to put another year of track record in place to say it wasn't just a one year blip with the Dodgers. It was a two year blip with the Dodgers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I could see him doing that but he's only going to get older and this right. coming season yeah, he will turns be his 33 in right. December so and so yeah. if he thinks that there is a market for him that is more lucrative than that then i i would imagine he he will try to take it so yeah i'm not saying he's getting an enormous amount i'm no. just saying if he signed a, a two year deal with a lower aav it would still be over the one year qualifying offer so Let's uh, just bank it on him not taking it. But if he does take it, and we'll know quite soon yeah, <laughs> then, sure will. that it's not the worst pick in the world. I won't take a loss. No, I think that that's a, well, that feels like a defensible pick to me. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm going to take the under on Andrew Benintendi. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. And gosh, there are a lot of Andrews in this list. There we go. I was <laughs> like, oh boy. Trade Rumors has him at four years and $54 million. I know that Benintendi was someone who, when Ben Clemens was getting the, the top 50 in order, he really struggled with exactly where to place him. Mm-hmm. And I get it. I think that you can look at his season this year and say, okay, we saw a recovery at the plate for him. He posted a 122 WRC plus. He put up almost three wins. He was an all-star for whatever that's worth. And he's, you know, he had part of his season sort of cut short by injury. And so, you know, we don't really get to see what he might have done if he had had a, a more extended run with the Yankees. But, you know, he's also a guy who 
doesn't really hit for much consistent power, and he's not a defensive standout. And apart from that 2018 he put up in Boston where he was worth about five wins and he had another like year kind of like this at the plate, he sort of vacillated between being league average and being, you know, 20% above. And he's always, you know, I'm always struck by him being like older than I expect him to be. Like mm-hmm. in my mind, I think he's still like 25 and he's going to be 28. Next year is his age 28 season. So he seems like the kind of guy who might end up signing like a surprisingly shorter deal than people expect given the name. And so mm-hmm. I just, I think I'm taking the the under here. I mean, he... He does get on base a lot, so like that is always going to give him something of a floor. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't strike out a ton, but I don't know. I just don't feel like the defensive profile really buttresses him in the way that it might, and he doesn't have enough else in the offensive profile where you, you're like, wow, there's really a, a standout tool apart from the on-base percent. I don't know. I just am, mm-hmm. I'm kind of yep. down on Andrew Benintendi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes yeah. sense. Um, All right. I don't know how I feel about this one, but I'm going to take the over on Wilson Contreras mm. at 484. Now, I don't know. That might be in the right range. And also, he'll have a qualifying offer attached. Right. So maybe this isn't a good pick, but I just made it. <laughs> so here's my case for it, which is that he's coming off an excellent offensive season, his best, and he's been a, a dependable, good hitter. And you almost certainly will have robo-umps at some point during this contract, right? I mean, we've got ABS system coming to AAA next year. It wouldn't be unreasonable to expect a challenge system or some form of this in the majors as soon as 2024. I don't know how much teams will be banking on that and factoring that in when it comes to someone like this or on the other side, someone like Austin Hedges, for instance. But it seems to me that you might factor in that framing is something he does not excel at and he costs you some value in that area (laughs) and perhaps he will cease to cost you that value or as much of that value at least. And so between that and him coming off the year he has and the fact that he could DH or he could even potentially play an outfield corner if you want him to. And it's not a deep classic catcher this winter. Like you have Christian Vasquez, but it's about it. I mean, there just there aren't a lot of marquee catchers out there, and there certainly aren't a lot who are as good hitters as, as he is. There aren't a lot of hitters at catcher who are as good as Contreras, period, league-wide. Right. It's a, a low ebb for offense for catchers. So... Putting all that together, and look, he's, what, he's 31, like, he's he's getting up there, so that could limit him. Would it be impossible for him to get a five-year deal? I I could see that happening. Actually, yeah. he's he's 30. He's not 31. He's uh, he, he won't turn 31 until mid-May, so I could see him potentially getting five if he held out for that, and... You know, I guess like he might be shooting for for the Asmani Grandal, like beating the Asmani Grandal contract. And I think he could. And Grandal was not coming off as good an offensive year when when he got his deal, though obviously he had more framing value. So I'm just I'm going to say that that someone will pay Wilson Contreras, but we will see. Yeah, I think that my reaction to that choice would be really different if. I thought that we were like three years out from robo-umps instead of like one Mm -hmm. or two, right? Yeah. But 
yeah, I think we're close. And then, mm-hmm. you know, he's got a good arm. Yep. And the battle carry him at a position, you know, further down the dis- defensive spectrum. So I get it. I think that's a defensible pick. All right. Mm-hmm. Where am I going to go next? Do I want to be contrarian at catcher? Well, I just took Contreras. I know. <laughs> you hang out with me too much. <laughs> well, it's not that I, I did do prep, you know? I did. I did it. I did some prep. And yeah. now I'm wavering. This is why mm-hmm. my drafts always go so badly. I don't stick to my convictions, Ben. <laughs> I'm not a, I don't show conviction. What are we, five in each? We've, we've um, done five? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, this is yeah. my sixth, sixth pick. pick. Okay. I am going to take the under on Mitch Haniger. All right. I feel bad doing it. Mm-hmm. I want to make that clear because okay. Mitch seems like a nice guy mm-hmm. who we know entirely too much about medically. Yep. I think that the issue with Haniger, like there's, you know, in some ways, like there are parts of his injury history that you can kind of discount. Like, you know, hopefully... He doesn't have same testicular issues. Yes. <laughs> had in the past. One can attribute that to kind of being fluky, but there's other there are other parts of his injury history that are more like a little bit more persistent, right? Like he missed the bulk of his time this year with a high ankle sprain. Maybe you view that as fluky, but like there's been back stuff off and on for him for a while now. And so there's that issue, but you know, I don't think that he is an elite or even a particularly good defender anymore. So that's going to limit his ceiling. And then you look at the last couple of seasons with him and you might say, well, if a team signs him and they get the version of Haniger they got last year where, you know, he posted a hundred well, 121 WRC plus and hit almost 40 home runs well that's you know that's good in a corner and even though he's not a great defender like okay that that's workable but if he misses a bunch of time and he is closer to the home run totals he posted in you know some of his gosh he really hit 39 home runs last year that's crazy. Good for Mitch yeah. Haniger. I don't remember that. I remember him being good at the plate, but I don't remember him hitting that much. Anyway, I'm just saying, like, the guy's about to be playing his age 32 season. He has, like, an injury history longer than my arm. He's not an elite defender anymore. He is an above average but not superlative bat. And so all of those things combined make me think that, like, three years and 39 just feels a little rich. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. All right, for my sixth pick, I will take the over on former Effectively Wild guest Ross Stripling mm. at two years and $18 million. He's just He's coming off a nice year. He's hitting free agency at the right time. And he's just – he's kind of a, a good guy to have around. Like yeah. he's a, a nice sort of swingman type. Yeah. He can be a credible starter. He can work in relief. Like he's coming off a year with a 3 RA and a FIP like right in that same range. And just like he's pretty solid. He's pretty dependable. Like he's – Durable-ish. He doesn't have huge innings totals because he has been in relief sometimes, but generally like a good dependable starter and I think probably could have started more for, for other teams, you know, like he was with the Dodgers for years when they just had a lot of pitching generally and right. 
He's only 32. I guess he's about to turn 33 later this month. And just kind of like in the Tyler Anderson school of like, I think he could do a little bit better than sub 20 million if he if he wanted to. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't think he'd exceed it by a ton, but I could see some team going over 18 for him, which is uh, all I want at this stage of the draft. Yeah, that seems reasonable to me. All right. Man, some of these reliever projections they have on here. Mm. I don't know if I want to monkey with that. I don't know if I want to mess with that, but I got to mess with somebody, Ben. Yeah, two more. I'm going to take the over on Zach Eflin. Ah, okay. Yeah, I consider that. Two years and $22 million. Mm-hmm. I think we're playing with small money here. Yep. So I don't think he's going to sign like a $100 million deal or anything. He obviously has had injury issues. He has been solid but not spectacular in the course of his career. And I get the sort of uncertainty when it comes to the role. He obviously pitched very well out of the bullpen or pitched well out of the bullpen for the Phillies when he came back from injury because they wanted to, you know, manage him carefully given the injury history. He would make more money if he can start, but sort of like stripling. There seems like there's some versatility there. And the thing about it is that everybody needs pitching and they need like solid and reliable pitching. And so if you think that his health woes are behind him and that he can either be like your number four or be a guy who pitches better than he starts out of the bullpen, then maybe you pay him a little bit more than $22 million. So Mm -hmm. I'm taking the over on Zach Eflin, who I always want to call. I either want to call him Zach Efron or I assume that I'm misremembering his first name because... Eflin and Efron kind of sound alike, but whatever his name is, I think he'll maybe make more than $22 million. Yep, I consider that one. All right, for my penultimate pick, I will take the under on Carlos Estevez. Mm, yeah, that was Three, one of those pitchers, yeah, uh, yeah. relievers. I was like, oh. Three years and, and $21 million. I had to like confirm that I knew who Carlos Estevez <laughs> was. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Rockies fans. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, he hasn't been a particularly distinguished reliever. Right. I mean, you got to course adjust a little bit, obviously. And, you know, like he throws hard, but who doesn't? these days in the back of a bullpen and you know without park adjusting like he's he's never had a sub four fip and he's pitched exclusively out of the bullpen so i'm just i'm not really bowled over like i guess he he presumably will be a bit better away from colorado and maybe miss some more bats but for a, a like a late inning type, it, he just seems sort of generic. <laughs> so right. I guess there are just other relievers with lower projections who seem more impressive to me. I guess partly it's that he's 29, but I don't know if he's like a candidate for a very long-term deal anyway. So yeah, Carlos Estevez. I think that's a good pick because I wouldn't be surprised if there are teams out there that are like, we can probably help this guy figures yeah, stuff true. out more but the thing is you don't pay a premium for those guys coming out of colorado so mm-hmm. yeah. you know that's the thing about them all right last pick for you this is my last pick mm-hmm. mm. <laughs> god how are we gonna value catchers you know yeah. like how are we even gonna think about them as a kind of player i'm trying to balance obvious positional scarcity with the not actually a good hitter of it all. Relative good hitter of it all, but not actually a good hitter of it all. 
Maybe I just think that this projection is like right on the money. Mm -hmm. Maybe I think that. Maybe I don't, though. I think I'm going to take the under on Christian Vasquez. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I'm going to do that. Because here's the thing. On the one hand, he's probably the other like guy who you could start for most of a run and feel like kind of okay about it. But I, I find it really interesting. Like Vasquez isn't a bad defender, right? He's not like the no. best, but he's not a bad defender. And he is, for a catcher, a, a reasonable bat. Like he had like a 99 WRC plus this year. He's almost a league average hitter at catcher, which is, as we have noted, like not good. Yeah. But he still mostly backed up Martin Maldonado. Mm-hmm. And Martin Maldonado had like a, didn't he have like a broken hand? <laughs> yeah, and a sports hernia. And a sports yeah. hernia. Yeah. And so I know that they love Martin Maldonado in Houston mm-hmm. and that he is he is thought to be very good with that staff. But I just find that like it's interesting that he backed up there mostly. I know that there are, are teams that need catchers, but I don't know. I think he might do a little bit worse than this not from an AV perspective but from a year's perspective like i could uh-huh. see him signing like a two-year deal that takes him through his age 34 season for a similar AV. but three years feels like maybe one more year than i would imagine he gets and so i think i'm taking the under you know yeah i i guess a decent amount of his defensive value comes from framing yeah i'm not sure that that will matter over the Although course he, of the contract he has he gets. a reasonable arm he's not like yeah, a no. I mean, he's been a, a very good defensive catcher at, at times. At times, I, yeah. I would say, yeah. And, yeah. and like, they felt like they needed him. I mean, a great team, the Astros, yeah. won a World Series. They felt like he would be an upgrade. And you're right. I assume that that is, like, partly loyalty to Maldonado and Maldonado just being the incumbent and And, like, being where the else veteran. are you going to play him, right? Like, right, if he doesn't yeah. catch, then what value does he have Yeah, at all? and your pitching staff has been so successful with Maldonado. Maybe yeah. you don't want to mess with that so much. So. He literally had a broken hand. <laughs> yeah, right. So there's that. I don't know. Maybe they didn't know about all the injuries he had all that time. I'm not sure. But anyway, all right. That's that pick. That's your last one. I will pick... Oh, and by the way, I meant to mention Contreras, like, despite the, the some defensive shortcomings, like, he's got a good arm. Like, he can throw guys out, which I think could be handy given the new pickoff rules and maybe more of a running game. So there's that. Anyway, I think I'll go with the over on Brandon Drury mm. at 2-18. and 18. I don't feel great about anyone who's left at this point. I, have, I haven't felt great about my picks in a while, but <laughs> Yeah. So, and look, he's he's kind of a one-year wonder. I mean, he's been bouncing around. I think he signed a minor league deal last year, and then he had this great career year, silver slugger, right, and hit well, and also, like, the, the batted ball metrics were much improved, and he gives you some defensive versatility, too. I mean, he doesn't play shortstop, but... He played a bunch of positions, and he can play second and third and first and a little bit of outfield even if, if needed in a pinch. And I guess he, he, he stood at shortstop for four innings. <laughs> but, but you know, like between the versatility and the hitting and he's only 30, I guess I could just see him beating this by a modest amount. I just don't really like no one else is calling to me right now. I, I thought about Adam Adovino over 214. Mm. I thought about, gosh, I I thought about Martin Perez 
over at the qualifying offer, but then I read a rumor that he was leaning towards accepting the qualifying offer. So Yeah, I think he really <laughs> wants to stay in Texas. So mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what we got. Yeah, it was, look, they did a good job predicting, or at least they did about as good a job as I would have done, I guess, because there weren't that many that stood out to me as being far from the mark. But I like your draft. I actually, I predict that you win this one. I think I feel better about your draft than I do about mine. I never feel good about my drafts. And, (laughs) you know, historically, that's been smart. So it's interesting. (laughs) Like, I feel like I know stuff about baseball, and I have reasonable takes, and then I draft in it all. Falls apart, Ben. Sometimes it all falls apart. Yeah. Well, I hate to tell you this, but we got to knock out this other one quickly. I know. Let's do this quick. All right. This is the World Series Odds Movers Draft. So again, to remind everyone what this is, we'll just we'll do this. This can be almost like a lightning round. Maybe I say that, yeah. and then <laughs> no, we'll see we if can we... do it as a lightning round. I, right. I guess. But, but the premise here, we we got the World Series odds as they stand today. And I don't know anything about odds and betting and gambling. Yeah. <laughs> Neither of us does. Yeah. I, just, I looked up the fan odds. I didn't have odds. to ask you what they mean. <laughs> I, Why would I didn't you... have to Google what they mean. Why would you say that? <laughs> but I looked up the fan duel odds and I looked up the DraftKings odds for the World Series winners in 2023 as they stood today, Monday, as we are recording. And I will put that online so everyone has it for reference. I think they haven't been updated extremely recently, but that's how they stand today. And then we will see where they are on opening day. And our goal here is, again, to be directionally correct. So we want to pick teams that will have either better World Series odds at the end of the offseason than they do now or worse. Mm. And we just want to pick right, whether it's better or worse. And again, this is just the odds today and the odds then. So we are essentially betting on who has a good offseason or who is perceived to have had a good offseason. And some of that obviously is is baked in so that if you expect a team to have a great offseason and add a bunch of good players, then presumably that would have been factored into these odds that these sites developed. And and I averaged the two sites, but, but they were very close in almost all cases. So yeah. I really could have flipped a coin, but whatever. So we're just going to choose like who we think will, I suppose, exceed expectations this winter. And, and we're we'll defining have... that by them getting more likely to win the World Series. Or worse. You could pick either. I, yeah, I, I should say we're not actually just choosing exceed expectations. It could be it could be either. So you can choose in either direction, Wait, just, so... uh, just like we did with the contracts draft where we can go over under. We can say that Team X will will be a longer shot, will be considered a longer okay. shot to win or or a shorter shot. Shorter <laughs> shot. Thing? Yeah. So so that's the that's the premise here. And uh, I, I guess, well, you went first last time. You I guess sh- please I, go first. Okay. <laughs> All right. I don't feel any more confident about this one than I did about that one. But here we go. So I think I will start by taking the Guardians to be better, ah! to, have, to have better odds by the end of the offseason. Right now, they are plus 37.50. That's the average of the two. And and with these odds, with these pluses, because we don't actually bet on sports, I always have to remind myself like what these things mean. And they're all the different odds versions of presenting these things. But basically, this is like it ranges from the Dodgers at plus 550 down to 
The Nationals, A's, and Pirates at plus 15,000. And if I understand this correctly, what that means is that if you bet $100 on the Dodgers, then you win 550. And if you bet $100 on the Nationals and and they win the World Series, then you win $15,000. So the longer the shot is, the more you make, obviously. And if you translate this to probabilities, I, I think this translates to like, the Dodgers have a, a 15.4 chance to win the World Series, and the Nationals and those other teams at the bottom have a 0.7% chance. So that's the range. So I'm choosing the Guardians at plus 37.50, partly just because the Guardians just seem too low to me. Yeah. As it is, like they're 16th on this list, and, and that just seems too low, or I guess they're tied for 15th with the Giants, and I just I think they're better than that. I mean, they exceeded expectations this year, but but they played well, like they deserved to win that division title, and they had an extremely young team, and they're not losing a ton of guys, presumably. I, I guess there are rumors about a Shane Bieber trade, potentially, so maybe that is playing a part here, but I Well, when aren't it's... there rumors of a Shane Bieber uh, yeah, trade? Yeah, sure. There are going to be rumors about any Guardians player, probably, but I think that is unlikely. I would not expect that to happen. And who knows, like, is this going to be the winter when the Guardians actually spend, you know, just like bolstered by the fact that they have this good young team and they just won the division and the division still seems winnable. And if they would just shore up a few spots like and do anything, (laughs) which they didn't do last winter, then maybe it would really make them a, a tough contender. Maybe, maybe this is the winter when they actually spend some money. Who knows? But but I think even if they run it back, like they'll they'll still have a better shot than this. Probably, I'm just like they're one spot above the Angels here. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't see how <laughs> that is right. So yeah, that seems wrong. Yeah, so it, it's just they seem underrated, and maybe they will have raised expectations by the time the season starts. Yeah, they were on my list also. Okay, I'm gonna take the Giants to have better odds of winning the World Series. Am I? Yes. You- Shorter sh- shots. Shorter shots. Yeah, that was on my board as well. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that it's fine to look at this year and be like, okay, this year demonstrated that, you know, you don't always have like a bunch of guys in their late 30s have career years all at once to like challenge the Dodgers for the division. But I do think that this Giants team is likely to spend money. I think that they will do what they can to retain Rodone, for instance. I I do think they'll take a run at Judge, even though I don't know for sure he'll want to sign there. You know, we have heard for a while now that like San Francisco is getting ready to spend money. Mm-hmm. And it feels like given the fit of some of the guys who are out there and where they are as a club, that maybe this is the year that they do that. And I think that, you know, even one like good signing or even just re-signing Rodon should put them ahead of like the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. They feel like they should be ahead of the Red Sox because yeah. I think the Red Sox are not very good. So I'm picking the Giants for the mm-hmm. over shorter shot. <laughs> to raise their, their odds. Yeah, to improve their odds. Yes. Because- if we ever have to do really, I mean like <laughs> Appleman doesn't ha- seem to have any interest in this, but man, if we ever really have to cover gambling specifically, I'm going to have to learn so much yeah, stuff. Right. Then to be clear, we're not endorsing anything here. I'm not suggesting that you do bet. We're just, we're using odds. Yeah. Oh, I'm saying because, don't bet. I'm yeah. say, I am giving a <laughs> negative endorsement. Right. It's don't, just a way to, yeah. to measure expectations yeah. now like, and, and at the end oh, of the winter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, don't don't bet. 
I'm going to say don't bet based on their odds, not because I think their odds are especially good or bad, but just I think do less betting and don't mm-hmm. bet based on what I say. That seems like a terrible idea. <laughs> L- listen to yeah. how I'm talking about it. Yeah. So so yeah, the, the Giants, as, as I mentioned, they're tied with the Guardians now plus 3750. Now, all of what you said in theory should be priced in. Like everyone knows the Giants. They, they seem like a candidate to spend. Farhan's idea said like this is going to be a big offseason for us. So all of that should be accounted for, but but maybe it isn't, I guess is what we're saying. And yeah. and, and if they got judge, like I could see that even more so than maybe it should, like bolstering sure. their, their odds, right? Everyone being like, oh, they just got the guy who hit 62 homers. Like, of course, they have better chance now. So, so yeah. I will be with you there. All right. I'm going to say that the Phillies become longer shots mm. by opening day. So so the Phillies right now are at plus 1550. They are the, the eighth best odds of winning the World Series. And I don't think they're the eighth best team. I don't think they were the eighth best team this year even necessarily so like maybe this is just you know playoff enthusiasm and Mm. and, hey they just won the pennant and maybe a little bit of that wears off and look they very well might break the bank again and i've seen rumors about xander bogarts going to philly right like maybe that could happen so i don't think they'll be complacent and maybe they will improve but boy they just they barely made it to the playoffs this year and so I don't know that they would go into next season as as the eighth best chance to win a World Series, especially in a division with the Braves and and the Mets. And, you know, they're very unlikely, I would say, fairly unlikely to win that division. And so then you're in the wild card spot again and they just showed what you can do from there. But, yeah, I'm just I'm going to say this is like a little bit of uh, post pennant enthusiasm that perhaps will subside slightly by the time the offseason ends. Yeah, that feels that feels fair to me. Okay. Okay. I am going to take the How do we want How do How did you say it to be better odds? <laughs> yeah, to improve their odds. I'm going to I'm I'm going to take the Orioles to improve their odds. Mm, yep, yeah, that's a good one. I'm taking the Orioles to improve their odds. They still face the gauntlet that is their own division. Yep. So there's that. And, you know, I I get that there are still holes on the roster. And I don't know how the sports books are pricing in, like, the seeming desire of of some quarter of that front office to, like, win as cheaply as possible. So I don't know what kind of spending they're gonna do i know that elias hasn't sounded like he's gonna like open the coffers or anything no brinks trucks being backed up (laughs) Mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like but they're close to a good team and they have a lot of exciting young guys and they have more exciting young guys coming yeah so i think that they have a better shot to win than yep. they're currently forecast for yeah better than the angels yeah plus 4250 they're 18th Best odds to win the World Series. So, Poor Angels yeah. being this pivot point for us, you know, the <laughs> yeah. axis around which we mm-hmm. base all of this. But uh, yeah, okay. Yay. I did it. All right. I did it. Okay. I am going to take the Rangers to improve their odds. Oh. So the Rangers right now, even worse than the teams we were just talking about and, uh, and the Angels as well. So the Rangers, they have at plus 6,000. So they're, they're 20th best odds to win the World Series. And 
this just feels to me like you probably don't spend all the money that they spent last winter, fire your head of baseball ops and your manager, bring in Bruce Bochy to just sort of sit on your hands again. So I could see them adding pitching and shoring up this roster and just improving from within a bit. And and I've said, like, there should be some regression to the mean here just from the historically terrible one-run record that they had last year. Now, that should be already factored into this, and I don't know if it will be factored into it anymore in late March than it is right now, but... Given that, and I'm just going to project that that they are somewhat active this offseason. So I will say that, that they improve their odds a bit by opening day. Yeah, it could be true. <laughs> it could be true. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. I'm going to take the under, the downside, the mm-hmm. they will get worse Okay. for the Red Sox. All right. They're at uh, plus 3,500, 14th best. And I know that, like you said, this is taking into account the current state of the roster. So, like, these odds know that they currently no longer have a Xander Bogarts, for instance. But I think a lot of that rotation is still pretty bad and hurt. And I think that their offense is worse even if they get more out of Trevor Story, which I imagine they hope they will. They're, like, willingly employing Eric Hosmer. So, and they don't seem like they're primed to spend a bunch. So I think if only to have a logically consistent board with Baltimore improving, I think Boston will get worse odds. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So that makes sense. Yep. that's what I think. All right. Hmm. All right. This is my penultimate pick here. I'm going to go over on the Marlins. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm going to go over on the Marlins. They're right now at plus 7250. That's 21st. They're right behind the Rangers. And it just like it feels like they got to make some moves at yeah. this point, right? Like they they just feel like a team that needs to do something. I don't know whether Bruce Sherman is going to actually decide to do that or not, but they just seem like they got to put up or shut up at this point. Like they yeah. got to maybe convert some of the that pitching into offense or actually spend some money. Like, I don't know. I guess it's not a great bet to bet on the Marlins to like invest in, in their team, historically speaking. But like if they're going to do something, if they're going to change their outlook, it kind of has to be now. Like this is the time. So I'm I'm betting – not really betting on that happening, but if it does happen, then I think they could improve their odds by the time the season starts. So there's at least some chance that they will. Okay. That logic feels sound to me. Okay. This is my penultimate bet. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take the Diamondbacks to improve their okay. odds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they have some fun guys, those Diamondbacks. Did you know? Yeah. And- well, a lot of the fun ones they have coming are probably a little bit further away yet, but I think that when you're going to have a full year of Corbin Carroll, like that's that seems good and Varsho kind of seemed like he took a legitimate step forward and Gallon has looked good and they are in a position where, you know, they just they really don't have very much committed when it comes to to payroll. 
and like 23 million of it is going to Madison Bumgarner. So, you know, mistakes have been made, but it's a new era of D-backs baseball. They're certainly not in position to challenge for the West, but I think that they are going to do better than these odds uh, see them as doing. So go mm-hmm. go D-backs. Okay. Well, I guess for my last pick, I'll I'll take the Angels to fall. Mm, yeah. <laughs> we were just talking sort about how surprising. they too high. Yeah. <laughs> so, neither of us did that early. Like the Angels at plus 4,000, that's 17th. Again, they're right between the Guardians and, and the Orioles. And that doesn't seem to make much sense. And I don't know that like DraftKings and FanDuel will know anything about the Angels in late March than, than they do now. We'll know more then. But like, I don't see why they're this high now. And maybe it's because... There's some hope that, like, you know, Otani's last year under contract. Maybe they will go spend big and actually try to win or try to convince him to stay. I don't think there's any chance that they're going to convince him to sign an extension. Like he said as much recently that he's just not even thinking about that really. And given the uncertainty about ownership, like the the franchise is in the process of being sold. So is Moreno going to want to invest money this winter? Like is the sale going to happen in time for whoever buys it to invest? And I know Perry Manassian said they won't be trading Otani, but I guess there's some possibility that he ends up not being the one to make that decision because the franchise is sold or something. And I don't know why you would buy the franchise and then immediately trade Otani. I mean, I think there's there's a good case to trade Otani because I don't see him staying at this point and I don't really see the Angels winning or, or having a better chance to win than they did this past year. But yeah, I I just like, it seems unlikely that they're going to make any sort of big splash. And I don't know whether this is pricing in some expectation that they will be more active than I think that they will be. But I just, I don't see how they stay in in the tier where they are currently placed. Yeah, that feels right. I think I agree with that. All right. I have a kind of spicy one, Ben. Okay, last pick. I don't know if it's actually spicy. We'll see if it's spicy. I think I think that not by a lot, not by a lot, but I think that the Mets might fall a little bit here. Uh Uh-huh, okay. I know that they know about all the free agents. Yeah. I know that they also know what we know, which is that Steve Cohen might just be like, screw it. Right. Here's a bajillion dollars. I'm not going to look at the the luxury tax payrolls as anything more than a nuisance, mm-hmm. not as something I have to like, you know, budget for. Screw it. He might say that. Yep. But they have they sure have a lot of holes that they have to fill now, you know? Yeah, they, do. they got mm-hmm. a lot of holes and they have some older guys and I think that that, you know, right now this is sort of price directionally, I think, correctly, where Atlanta has better odds of winning the World Series than the yeah, Mets Yeah, the Mets do. are at plus 1,075 average. That is uh, fifth fifth best. Right. But I think that they might fall a little bit. Not a mm-hmm. lot, but I could yep. see them falling a little. So yeah. I'm taking those Mets. Makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, the Yankees are, are right ahead of the Mets. And look, if they lost Judge somehow and, and it would be tough to make up for losing Judge, then yeah. I could potentially see them falling too. Yep. So either New York team would be a, a pretty decent pick. But all right. Well, that's that draft. So we will put that online and you can make your own picks. And then in theory, we will remember to follow up on this uh, shortly before opening day, and hopefully they will update the numbers. You have to remember. Yes. If you don't remember, mm-hmm. I probably I probably won't remember, Ben. Okay. I'll remember the other one, but not yes. this one. 
This will one I'll probably forget. These will appear on our magic competitions and drafts spreadsheet maintained mm. by John Chenier. I will link to that so you can find all our old ones as well. And we will end now with the Pass Blast. This is episode 1929. This comes from 1929 and from Jacob Pomranke, Sabres Director of Editorial Content and Chair of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. And this leads off 1929, A Dying Art. Throughout the 1920s, as more teams tried to copy Babe Ruth's Yankees and add home run hitters to their lineup, stolen bases fell off as a popular strategy. The American League leader in 1929, Charlie Geringer of the Tigers, had just 27 stolen bases, a record low at the time. Of course, he also led the AL with 45 doubles, 19 triples, and 131 runs scored, too. J.G. Taylor Spink of the Sporting News came up with his own unique theory on why nobody was running anymore. Quote, Major league managers quite concertedly agree that the art of base running is dying out. The number of stolen bases recorded for the best base runners of today is far lower in number than it once was. The principal factor in curtailing base running has been the increase in the number of umpires who have charge of a ball game. Umpires are so many now and so located on the diamond that the runner cannot get the shade of a decision because an umpire is too far away to see whether the runner is safe or out. Hence, the more umpires, the fewer stolen bases, because the runners will not take chances. Mm. There must be an education of runners into outwitting the pitcher so that the decision on a stolen base shall be clean and not in doubt. Jacob ends, as offenses continue to score runs at a record-setting pace into the 1930s, stolen bases stay down for many years to come. In 1938, Stan Hack led the National League with only 16 steals, a league record that wasn't broken until the Rockies' Trevor Story stole 15 bases in the shortened 2020 season, if we're counting that. So this is interesting. I would not have identified that as a factor here, and I'm still not sure I would, but he is arguing that stolen bases were down because there were more umpires on the field, and therefore runners were not just getting the benefit of the doubt because apparently he thought when umpires were far away, they would just kind of give the edge to the runner if they actually like couldn't tell because they weren't close enough to see. And so the more umpires he thought, the less likely the runner was to get the benefit of the doubt, and thus the less likely they were to steal or to be successful when they did steal. So... I don't know if I'd buy that explanation, but it's, yeah. it's an interesting one, at least. Like Craig Wright in his excellent newsletter, Pages from Baseball's Past, like he wrote about how stolen bases dramatically decreased around this time. And he wrote, the radical decline in steals came about due to the reaction and eventual overreaction by managers to the rise in both batting average and power hitting in the live ball era, which made it easier to rely on the players' bats rather than their speed to advance runners around the bases. So that was my understanding. And that is still my understandings. <laughs> so I don't know that I accept this as, as an actual explanation, but it's interesting. I hadn't thought of that affecting the decision about whether to go or not, like whether there's an umpire who's close enough, because I wouldn't have even known like which side would get the benefit of the doubt, because if you're not close enough to see the slide, might you not just go by, did the ball beat you, as opposed to like, did you actually manage to evade the tag? And then would that favor one side or another? Yeah. I don't know. I don't anyway, know. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that was one explanation. <laughs> All right. Well, that will do it. Well, like the rest of you, I now also know the results of the Rookie of the Year voting. And it turns out that on the NL side, Meg was very much in the majority. She was one of 22 first place votes for Michael Harris II. Spencer Strider got the other eight, including one from Dan Simborski of Fangraphs, who voted for Strider and wrote about that for the site. So that's a somewhat wide margin. But not so much that it shocks me. 
I did say that the only thing that would really surprise me was if we got really lopsided results, and we actually did on the AL side, where Julio had a convincing victory over Adley Rutschman. Julio got 29 first-place votes, the lone first-place Adley Rutschman vote from Ben Nicholson-Smith, former Effectively Wild guest. And Ben had a Twitter thread about why he supported Rutschman, and it was completely reasonable, so much so that I'm sort of surprised he was the only one to come to the same conclusion. Not sure which way I would have gone on this one. I think either is perfectly defensible. I'm not surprised that Julio won. I'm just surprised that it was this lopsided. And Ben based his case on intangibles, or at least things that are currently intangible or difficult to quantify, at least. The fact that the Orioles did so much better once Rutschman was called up, of course, and the pace at which Rutschman played from day one, or not quite day one, because he sort of slumped at first, but also the performance of the Orioles' pitching staff. He's clearly an excellent defensive catcher, as well as a good hitter. So yeah, sort of surprised that it was as clear-cut a victory for Julio. Does seem like Julio is more famous than Rutschman? Maybe in part because the Mariners made the playoffs and the Orioles didn't, but they were so close right up until the end of the season. Just seems like Julio is a a bigger personality, maybe more magnetic on a national level. He was in the Home Run Derby, he got that spotlight, so he's just broken out a bit more as a personality, I would say. I don't know whether that swayed anyone, consciously or unconsciously. Anyway, you had Stephen Kwan in third, and then Bobby Witt Jr., Jeremy Pena, and George Kirby also receiving votes. On the NL side, it was Brendan Donovan third, and then Jake McCarthy, Alexis Diaz, Nick Lodolo, and O'Neill Cruz also mentioned on ballots. No Joey Manessas, sadly. I've also been thinking about our second draft since we concluded. I can see the Royals rising as well. Seems like they're breaking from Royals tradition if one of the breaks is that they go out and sign some prominent free agents. I could see them being sort of a, a dark horse come opening day, what with all the young talent that they have. Speaking of Bobby Witt, I was also thinking maybe the Dodgers could fall. Not that they're not going to go into the season probably projected as the most likely World Series winner in the NL and certainly division title winner in the NL West. But say they lost Trey Turner, say they didn't quite compensate for that, don't go get a big name guy. I could see their odds maybe taking a slight step back. So you could say they were also in consideration for me. And finally, just wanted to follow up on our last episode. I had Jeff Perlman on. We talked about his new Bo Jackson book, The Last Cult Hero. And he told a story about how in high school, Bo Jackson had a game where he hit a fly ball so high that by the time the left fielder picked it up after he lost it and it dropped, Bo Jackson was at third base already. And Jeff, of course, caveated how preposterous this sounds and how difficult it is to believe. But he talked to many sources, including the actual left fielder who picked up the ball and said, yeah, he was at third base already by the time I got it. And so Jeff presented this as a a difficult to believe story about Bo Jackson that sounds mythical, but maybe isn't. And he had actually told this story on another show, and it came to my attention that someone asked Tom Tango of MLB and StatCast whether this could possibly be true how high you'd have to hit a ball for even the fastest MLB player, let alone a high school player, to be at third by the time the ball came down. And Tango said, easy enough. First, you need to know how much time it takes to get to third base. Since we know inside the Parkers from the fastest runners max out at 13 seconds, or I guess it would be min out at 13 seconds, you can remove the last 90 feet at 30 feet per second, which is about three seconds. So the ball needs to be about 10 seconds in the air. Gravity is 32 feet per second squared. A ball hits straight up at 160 feet per second. That's 110 miles per hour. With the entire force going straight up means the ball will have a final velocity of zero in five seconds. That's 160 over 32, ignoring air resistance. So that would be five seconds up, five seconds down. That's 10 seconds. 
So that sounds plausible that you would hit the ball 110 miles per hour. Tango says that gives you 400 feet high. However, air resistance is real. That ball will go to 240 feet in reality and up in 3.5 seconds and down in 4 seconds. So including air resistance to make the story plausible, you need it to go straight up at 160 miles per hour. Don't think even Bo Jackson could do that. We don't have StatCast for him, but we know that the hardest hit balls now are just a little bit over 120 miles per hour. So 160, don't think so. And there was another physicist in that thread who had their own model and they had some graphs and had a calculator including air resistance. And they also found that to get to 10 seconds of hang time, exit velocity needs to be about 167 miles per hour. So yeah, judging by that, it doesn't sound possible. However, that's just for the ball to go up and come down. In this case, the fielder didn't catch it and so had to bend over and find the ball and retrieve the ball and then look up and see Jackson, right? So I guess it depends how long you think that could conceivably have taken. Did he take one second to do that? Two seconds? Three seconds? You know, if you start to get into, well, that takes an extra few seconds, then I think we're potentially in the realm of plausibility. Still sounds like a slight stretch, but maybe it just took a little while for him to pick up the ball and spot Jackson, in which case the story is a little less incredible, but also more plausible. And of course, it's a good story one way or another. So there are the numbers. You can come to your own conclusions. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Cal Liss, Amy Lee, Anthony, James Eberwine, and David Foster. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, where the hot stove discussion never stops. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes that Meg and I record, plus discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and more. Anyone, of course, can contact us via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can all join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, at least if you're not locked out of your account because Elon shut off two-factor authentication. You can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back in the middle of the week to talk about qualifying offer decisions and 40-man roster deadline decisions and who knows what else. Talk to you then. And you've waited so long and I've waited long enough for you. Honestly, I might be stupid to think love is love, but I do. And you've waited so long and I've waited long.